Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Let's go. According to uh, Pastor Matt Kowalski, this word is about to be tremendous and amazing. So you all buckle up. No pressure whatsoever on me. I appreciate that, Matt. You're not even in here right now, but uh, I am so excited about diving into the book of Ephesians, part two on the book of Ephesians. But before we get there, just a couple quick things uh, to add on to church news. You know, summer around here at Hills Church, uh, we don't ramp down for summer, do we? (laughs) No, we ramp up. Things get crazy around here in the summer. This summer we have Camp X, we have Youth X, tons of amazing stuff for our kids and for our students. And friends, we need volunteers for both. Uh, The deadline for Camp X is coming up a little quicker since Camp X is around the corner. And so if you want to lay down your life for Jesus, come on, somebody. Uh, Why don't you join and be a volunteer this summer helping us out with 1,400 kids going crazy on this campus. Uh, We still need about 70 or so volunteers to help there, but it's going to be a ton of fun. And then YouthX coming up towards the end of the summer as well is in need. Let's go. I hear some energy. Um, is in need of volunteers as well. And there are, there's a QR code you can use. You can use uh, the Next Steps card at the seat back in front of you and let us know if you want to serve in either of those. And um, it's a great way. It's a great way for you to serve the church, to invest in the next generation, and powerful way for your heart to get connected to what God is doing here. Also want to take just a second to talk about Generosity. And I always think about this in terms of heart connection, mentioning the heart connection. When you serve, when you volunteer, when you give to a church or any organization, something in your heart gets connected to what's happening there. You know, recently we just sponsored as a church 350 plus kids in Maranyahom. I said it right. I got it. I've dialed that in. Brazil, uh, really all the way thousands of miles away. We launched a child development center there through Compassion International, and, you know, my family, we jumped in, and we are sponsoring two of the children in that village, and let me just tell you, my heart is connected to Maranhão, Brazil now. My heart's connected there, because it's a place that we're giving to and supporting, and specifically kids. It's an amazing thing. But Jesus said the same is true for our generosity. You see, where your money is, there your heart will be also. And friends, I want to encourage you, if you've never taken the step of giving here at Hills Church towards the mission of this church, towards reaching the next generation, towards all the Love the 50 for the 50 initiatives, through everything that we do here on Sunday mornings, I want to encourage you to step in and to regularly give, to give generously. Maybe you've given for a long time, but it's time for you to say, man, Lord, would you have me step up or even give more in the days ahead to the mission of this church? Because as you do, there is something in your heart that gets connected here on a deeper level. And, you know, when Jesus talks about the reality of giving, when the scriptures bring up the reality of the tithe, the way they do it, the way the scriptures roll this out for us, and it's Something that I've just learned throughout my lifetime as my wife and I have chosen to do this and to live this way. But what happens is this, is the reality of life, all of life is governed and owned by God. 
The breath you just took was a gift from God. The seats in this auditorium, this entire world is literally held together by Christ. It's all his. He doesn't need our money. The beauty of supporting his work on earth and the reason that he asked us to do it is he says, in the act of giving away what's already mine that I've entrusted to you, there's something happening in your heart that just reminds you, oh, it's yours anyways. Something in your heart that reminds you, oh, everything I have is from you. This is a joyful act of giving back to you what is already yours to support your work in the world. And friends, that's how generosity works. It connects your heart, sets you free from the love of money, and it gives back to God what is already his. Reminds you that everything you have, you're a steward of temporarily for him. Amen? Amen. Okay, before we jump into Ephesians today, I have to give a shout out to my wife. She was here at the 9 a.m. If you were around last week for Mother's Day, you know she just killed it. She absolutely brought an amazing word and um, was so proud of her. Uh, but it was so funny because I got so many text messages after the service, and one of them said, Jonathan, uh, how does it feel being the second best preacher in your home? I was like, it feels amazing. I love it. But I took such courage for her, and I was so proud of her, excited to get her up here more in the days ahead. But today we're jumping into the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're in part two of this, and hopefully today we're going to finish up chapter one. There is so much in here. The book of Ephesians, man, it is, it is one of those letters that Paul wrote that scholars believe he was, he was outlining sort of a beginning, you know, uh, outline or template for the Christian faith. Here's the core of what it means to be a Christ follower, a Jesus follower. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it means. And, and Paul was kind of like God's Holy Spirit interpreter of what happened when Jesus died and rose again. He's like, guys, gals, this is what this means for you. Everyone was really confused by the whole Jesus incident, and Paul comes along and writes things like Ephesians and Romans and Corinthians, and he's explaining to the world who Jesus was and what it means that he died and rose from the dead. And so Ephesians is Paul continuing to unpack that a couple weeks ago. We went down all the way to verse 10. This week we're going to go verse 11 to 23, and we're going to read the whole section. Y'all ready for this? Come on, pay attention. We're going to dive in. Here we go. Verse 11. Here's how it starts. Chapter 1. In him. If you remember two weeks ago, that was a big theme. In him, in Christ, says this. We have obtained. It's already ours. We have it. An inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ, remember that word hope, and remember that word inheritance, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, remember that word truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, here it is again, inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul's praying for this church. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts. 
Your heart has eyes, spiritual eyes, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you would know what is the hope, there's that word again, what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? The power of God towards us who believe. You all sticking with me here? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Somebody. Paul is preaching. They actually do think this letter was originally preached as a sermon to a church, and it was recorded. It's written like a sermon. It's like, man, he's bringing this thing home. He's bringing the crescendo right here. But today, as we unpack these verses, I mean, there's far too much in this section to hit on in one sermon. I have 17 pages. We are not getting through all of this today, but we're going to get as far as we can. And the thing that struck me was this, as I was thinking of a title, thought of this. I think these verses, they encapsulate these ideas, the power of the past, the past being your past, but also what Christ has done for you in the past, and the hope of tomorrow, the hope of the future, the hope of our calling in Christ, the hope of who we are called to be in Christ. There is Beautiful things that we celebrate as Christians, powerful things in the past from Christ, and there is great hope for us in the days to come. And friends, as you read the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the scriptures, as you read the Bible, pay attention to the words. <laughs> I know that kind of feels like it should go without saying. When you read, pay attention to the words. Pay attention to the words that Paul uses more than once. Pay attention to words like inheritance, hope, truth, power. These words were words that he used multiple times over these verses. And as you come to them in the scriptures, pause. Don't be in a hurry. It's not a race. I know sometimes like daily Bible reading, it feels like got to get it checked off the list. Got to get through it fast. Done. I have no idea what I just read. Can't remember a single word. Am I the only one in the room? Slow down. Just pick a few verses. Notice words that pop off the page. Notice words that he repeats and ask, what does he mean by inheritance? What does he actually mean by hope? What does he mean by truth? What does he mean by power? These words that he uses over and over again. What is he actually saying? Well, let's begin to dive in. Let's begin to ask the questions. And I want us to notice a couple things that we began to look at two weeks ago. You guys ready? You in for this? Here we go. Okay, first thing, in him, all throughout chapter one, Paul says it over and over and over again. Two little words, notice them, don't miss them. In him, in who? That's right. That's like the one answer you can't get wrong in church. Jesus, just shout it out whenever you want. Jesus, in him. We have obtained, so we've been given something. It's ours, right? It's an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's a loaded sentence section right there. We're not even going to 
We're not even going to get into it this week. A lot of it right there. Uh, But it moves on. So that we who were the first to hope, there's that word hope, in who? In Christ. Might be to the praise of his glory. So in this section, we see the reality of in him, in Christ. We see this idea of inheritance. We see this idea of hope, right? It goes on to the next two verses. How do we start, Paul? What do you want us to recognize again and again and again? In him. You have nothing if you don't have Christ. You have everything if you have Jesus. The entire Christian faith hinges on are you in him? Are you in Christ? Do you have faith in Christ? Because if you don't, you don't have any of the other blessings that he's talking about here. In him. You also, when you heard the word of truth. Man, we live in a culture, a generation, a day. It says truth. There's no, there's no such thing as truth. It's all relative. Your truth is yours. Mine is mine. Don't come at me with your truth, right? But Paul goes, no. There is truth, objective reality, true objective reality that's above your experience, outside of your experience, outside of your little sovereign domain of your personhood. There is something true outside of you that you have to decide whether you believe or not. That's what Paul's talking about here. He goes, when you heard the word of truth, the truth about the world, God, and yourself, what is the truth? What is the word of truth? What's he talking about here? The truth. We're going to switch colors to make sure y'all are awake. The gospel. That's the truth. The gospel, he says, is true. The gospel of your salvation. And believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, important word here, guarantee of our inheritance. Again, he hits that. Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I want to start with this idea of truth, the truth of the gospel, the gospel being a truth claim. You see, there are so many times if I'm talking to somebody who is maybe not a Christian and I I ask them, I say, well, do do you know what Christianity is, what Christianity claims? What do you mean when you say, I don't like Christianity or I'm not a Christian? It's a fair question. I just want to know what we're, I want to make sure we're talking about the same things. And often what I'll get back when I, when I ask them, you know, what, what do you think it means to be a Christian? They'll begin to list off some things that Christians either believe in or don't believe in or do or don't do or things that Christians think are bad or good. They begin to list off all the ethics, the moral quote unquote demands of our faith. They don't like the Christian view on sexuality. They don't like the Christian view on this, on that, on finances, on on anything, right? Whatever it may be, lying, truth. I mean, you get down into this, all the Sermon on the Mount things that Jesus talks about, which are all biblical and good and true, but I, I simply come back to them. I'm like, hey, let's put all that aside for a second. Because all that comes after, really, it doesn't matter what you believe about that right now until you can tell me what you believe about Jesus. Because if you're just summing up the Christian faith as a list of morals and rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts and good and bad behavior, like, that means Christianity is just like every other religion. It's just a list of things that we need to do in order to be cool with God and get to heaven. And friends, that's not it. 
It's not what Christianity is. You know, I have to ask them, I have to press in. Have you considered the claims of the resurrection from the dead? Have you considered the claims of Jesus? His death for you on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Have you considered the evidence for that? Because, friends, that's the beginning of Christianity. That's the heart of it right there. The good news of the gospel is not what you have to do to get right with God, but what God did to make you right with him if you believe. See, actions of God on your behalf. It's not what you should or should not do. I'm like, here's the deal at the end of the day for all of us. For all, and Paul said this in Corinthians. He goes, look, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you don't need to listen to anything else in this book. None of it matters. If there's no resurrection from the dead, he goes, your faith is in vain. It's all futile. Who cares what it says to do or don't do at all? Start with the central claim of Christianity. Do you believe that Jesus is God, that he lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death for you, and then rose from the dead? If you reject that, fine, but just make sure you're rejecting what Christianity really is, okay? Yet, however, pause. If you believe it, if you've examined the evidence, if you've looked for the truth and you've walked away like thousands and thousands of brilliant, smart scientists and journalists and, I mean, kings of nations who've looked at this and said, man, how did this whole thing really happen? How did this start? Seems like he really must have risen from the dead. Therefore, he was God. If he did rise from the dead, it changes everything, and we had better take a close look at what he said. If he's the creator, if he's the, the king of it all, then we had better take a really close look no matter what we feel or what the circumstances around us or the culture that we're in tells us. If he says it's true, if his word says it's true, then we better say, okay, I'm coming into alignment with God, the one who conquered sin and death, the one who's coming back to make all things new. He is laying out objective truth for me. I don't come to the Bible and say, I need to fit this into my image my feelings, my whatever. I come to the Bible with humility and I say, Lord, show me, reveal everything in me that's not according to you and God, help me. Help me become an image bearer of God in Christ. It's amazing. There's this uh, famous museum in the heart of London, one of the most famous museums in the world. It's the Victorian Museum in London. And there was a whole article written recently about a display that was put up in the, in the museum called Postmodernism is Dead. Postmodernism is Dead. Now, why that's so interesting to me, it's interesting for a couple reasons, but one is because that's great. The uh, you know, intellectual elites have decided that this whole idea of postmodernism didn't work. We were kind of hoping it would. It didn't work. But postmodernism is basically the claim that each human individual has complete autonomy to decide for themselves their own version of truth. Therefore, I can't say you're wrong. You can't say I'm wrong. We're all equally right. Everyone's right. You're right. You're right. And you're right. Now, this came out of the intellectual elites way back in the 50s and 60s. It came to prominence in the 80s. And now here we are in the 2000s, and they're all saying, well, we don't think that works. 
We think postmodernism is dead. I'm like, I wish I would have thought that out before you came up with it because now it's all the way down in our society everywhere and everyone believes my truth is my truth and there is no such thing as truth. Maybe we should have just stuck with what God said to begin with. But over time, you see a problem arose with postmodernism. G.K. Chesterton said it best. He goes, by rebelling against everything, you lose your right to rebel against anything. If you say there is no truth, your truth is yours, mine is mine, whatever it is, claiming there is no truth is itself a truth claim. It's a massive truth claim about the reality of the world. He goes, this kind of thought stops all other thought. He goes, that's the only kind of thought that should be stopped. It's not liberating. You can't object to anything. And friends, we as humans, we were designed to have a true north, to have a reality that we are centered to, and that reality is God and what he says about us in the world. And if we reject all truth, there is no truth. Nobody has anything to stand on. And it's, kill, it's killing a generation. I really believe that. But Paul moves on from this, right? He says, the word of truth, which is the gospel, the true north, the reality of who God is and who you are and our need of salvation. And then he gets into this idea of inheritance over and over and over again. And he says, the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the guarantee of your inheritance, of something that belongs to you, of something that is coming to you in the future. When you believed in the truth of the gospel, your heart was set free, your heart was made alive, and the Holy Spirit made his home, made the Spirit of God made his home inside of you, right? And he was the down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Came across this story on Google this week. True story, amazing story. It's about the largest accidental donation in the history of goodwill. It's wild, okay? It involves um, an elderly couple, Lynette and Dan LaCrone in Ohio, some small town in the middle of nowhere, Ohio. And they had been saving for years and years and years in the bank, just putting away cash every month. They'd been saving for a down payment on their future retirement home. They had their eyes set on this property and this house for many years where they wanted to retire to have enough space for the, the grandbabies and the kids and everyone to come back for holidays. And it had been sort of this life dream of theirs, right? And so Dan LaCrone, he was a little bit old school. And, uh, you know, comes time for him to, to make an offer on this property and the offer's accepted. So now he has to go get the money to make the, the down payment for the house to, you know, to claim it, to put it in his name as he buys it. And, you know, in most real estate transactions, the down payment is either made from bank to bank or with a check or some form of official, you know, documentation. But Dan LaCrone, he goes all Al Capone on it, and he just rolls a suitcase into the bank and says, uh, Mr. Bank Manager, I'd like you to put $100,000 in my rolly suitcase right here. True story. The bank manager goes, uh, why, are you sure? <laughs> Imagine this moment, right? And uh, he's like, okay, it's your money. So he unloads exactly $97,004 $97, of cold, hard cash into this little rolly suitcase. And, you know, Dan picks it up and just rolls it right out the way he came. 
walks straight out the front of the door to his car where Lynette is, his wife, opens the trunk and throws the suitcase in the trunk of his car. No big deal, right? Just gangster. And uh, it was so funny because, you know, of course, after you pull out $100,000 in cash from the bank, um, they were in the process of cleaning out their old house, getting it sold, and they had a bunch of trinkets that they wanted to get rid of from their old house, so they were going to go to Goodwill. So that's what you do after you pull out cash from the bank. Just go to Goodwill, right? And they go to one of these uh, big drop-off containers outside of the Goodwill, and uh, Dan walks around behind his car, and this was actually terrifying to me. I could see myself doing this. Man, anyone with me? But he starts unloading all the stuff that they're trying to get rid of into this donation bin at the Goodwill. And, you know, next to it, in his mind, he's just looking at the trunk of his car, and he's like, oh, there's an old suitcase. I guess I put that in there for the same reason. He picks it up and donates the suitcase with $97,004 in it to Goodwill. Then they drive home. True story. They go to uh, purchase the house, and two days afterwards, Lynette says, Dan, go get the suitcase from the closet. Yes, sweetheart. Just imagining the conversation. Walks back to the closet. It's not in here. Where'd you put it? Oh, maybe it's in that closet. Maybe it's in the living room. I'm not sure. Where, uh, we'll find it. Oh, maybe it's still in the trunk of the car. They go to the trunk of the car. It's not there. Heart starts beating a little faster, right? Where is the suitcase? You see, it's not just a suitcase. That suitcase represents our future, our home, everything that we've longed for, where to go. And they're retracing their steps, and it just, like a lightning bolt hits him, I'm sure. He's like, Goodwill. I threw it in the bin, right? So they hightail it over to Goodwill, and they're like, uh, did you guys by any chance uh, see something unusual in a suitcase two days ago? One of the employees, they were quoted, uh, Barb Claypool. I can't make these names up. Amazing. When she found the money two days prior, she laughed and looked at Betsy, her coworker, and said, hey, look at all the Monopoly money in this suitcase. Betsy came over and said, uh, Barb, that looks real. She picked up a stack of hundreds. She goes, it feels real. Smelled it. She goes, it smells real. Who smells money? They immediately called the front office, who then called the cops, and the suitcase was taken into custody at the local police station. Story goes on. So they show up at the Goodwill. They're like, hey, uh, that suitcase, it was impounded over at the sheriff's office. you got to go talk to sheriff to get that back. So Dan and Lynette rush across town to the police station. And they show up inside, and they're like, do you have our suitcase? It has like $100,000 in it. I'm sure the police are like, funny story, likely story. I'm sure you heard it from somebody. How do we know it's your suitcase? Because there was no identification on the suitcase or anything else that was donated to Goodwill that day. And he's like, well, it has exactly $97,004. Well, that still doesn't mean it's yours. It's a lot of money. I'm not just letting you walk out of here with it. How can you prove that it's yours? And Dan's thinking, I didn't even keep, he's like, I didn't even keep my withdrawal slip, right? I got the cash. Why do I need the slip? I got the proof right here. So he's like, let's walk over to the bank. Jeff, he remembers. He remembers me rolling the cash out of the bank that day and putting it in my car. So the sheriff, Dan, Lynette, go to the bank. They set up a meeting with the manager, Jeff, who goes, yep, that's Dan and that's Lynette. And yes, he did roll that suitcase out of this bank three days ago with $100,000 in cash. Give it back to him. And there the story ends. They got their house, praise God. <laughs> Unbelievable, true story. 
But, but here's what I want us to see from this, because a suitcase on its own, zippers break, handles break, wheels eventually wear out, fall off. Maybe it has some life left in it, so we donate it somewhere. It really had nothing to do with the suitcase. It had to do with what was inside of the suitcase, which was the down payment, the guarantee for what they wanted, what belonged to them, this home. The thing that they had been looking forward to and saving for, saving for for years and years and years. You see, it wasn't even just the money that mattered. It was what the money represented. It represented holidays and moments of connection with their family and this place that they could call home. And so the hope of that future, the hope of what was coming, it was all connected to what was inside. The reality of what was inside the suitcase. And you see, it's no different for us. Friends, at the end of the day, if you think about this, the reality of future, of a future inheritance or getting something that belongs to you because it was either purchased by you or purchased by another, it creates hope for today. Knowing something good is coming changes the reality of your today. The reality of what is coming changes the experience of your pain and suffering today. Changes whatever you might be facing today. And this is true of the word inheritance. This word was first used in Exodus right after the Israelites had been set free from Egypt. Paul is like pulling the stories together. Old Testament, New Testament, he's pulling it all together. Right after, I mean imagine this, God displays power over the strongest nation in the world, Egypt. He says, let my people go. They get set free with the Passover lamb, which is a picture of the cross of Christ. They come to the edge of the Red Sea. The Egyptians are like, actually come back. We really don't want to work on our own. We want to do this with you as our slaves again. So they go after him to capture them again. And in the last moment, God parts the waters. Israel flees into freedom. And then God destroys the Egyptian army. And I imagine the Israelites on the other side were thinking, "Woo! 260 miles to the promised land, right across the wilderness here. It's maybe a four-month journey, not that hard, not too long. But the word inheritance, God says, I'm going to bring you to your inheritance. The inheritance spoke of the land, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their inheritance But it didn't happen in four months or four years or 20 years. It was 40 years. From their disobedience, their lack of faithfulness, from their lack of trust in God, God led them in the wilderness for 40 years. He was with them. He was in their midst as a pillar of fire and a cloud of covering. He gave them manna and provided for them every single morning. And they still had hope that he would make good on his promise that one day they would receive the inheritance. And as years went on, they realized, well, maybe it's not us, but at least our kids are going to get it. And God was with them as they wandered in the wilderness. And friends, the reality is this. The guarantee of our inheritance is the Spirit of God with you and in you, transforming you, walking with you every single day. 
It's God's presence walking with you through the wilderness of your life as you wander the highs and the lows and the dark seasons and the valleys and the mountaintops and whatever it may be. That is a picture of God's presence with you. Yes, you're not in Egypt anymore. You've been set free from sin and death. But friends, we are not fully in the promised land until Christ comes back and makes all things new. That's our hope. That's what we're looking for. The day when death and sickness and pain and sorrow are gone completely and Jesus reigns and he is the head of all things. He is all, the name above every name. And until that time, we have this guarantee of the inheritance which is the Holy Spirit which says that day is coming because Christ did rise from the dead. Are you guys sticking with me? I know this is a lot. We're going Old Testament and New Testament word by word through the first chapter. But it's so powerful because Paul's praying for the church in Ephesus. He's praying. He's saying, friends, I want your hearts to see it. I want you to cling to the hope that you've been called to. The hope, it's that hope that will give you the power to get through. Hope is the source of power. Hoping in Christ and in the promise of the inheritance to come is what gives you the strength to face whatever you're facing today whatever you're walking through today. It's amazing the the English word hope is so different than the Greek word for hope. The English word for hope really implies this sense of, well, I hope so. I hope that happens. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I have hope, but I'm not sure. The Greek word for hope is completely different. The Greek word says, I'm trusting in the certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but it's certainly going to happen, and therefore it's impacting my life today. And Paul and all the writers of the New Testament, here's the amazing thing. He goes, look, I want the faith that you have, the faith in Christ, to transform your experience of life now. I want this reality of heaven to collide with your reality on earth, and I want it to change the way that you parent your kids. I want it to change the way that you love your spouse. I want it to change the way that you act at work. I want it to change your relationships, how you spend your money, how you spend your time. I want you to find freedom from bad habits. I want you to live in the fullness of what I've called you to be, and it's through hope. It's through faith and hope and what God has done and this future reality of where we are heading, friends. Over and over again, Paul reminds us of a day coming. He reminds us of the ultimate rescue. Yes, we've been saved by grace. Our souls have gone from death to life by grace. But friends, we are still dealing with sin. Our bodies are still slowly fading. These are all realities that we're facing in the world. And God goes, you have the guarantee, the down payment of the spirit inside of you. But there's a day coming when I'm going to make all things new. And in the meantime, do you know the power that I have for you? Do you understand the depths of the power that is available to you in Christ? And here's what it says in verse 20. And the keys can come out because we're going to close with this. Ephesians 1, verse 20. I'll start in verse 19. He's praying for the Ephesians. He's praying for you and for me. He goes, I'm praying that you would know 
the immeasurable greatness, immeasurable. That's a good word to sit on and be like, what does immeasurable mean? It means you can't even measure it. You can't, it's so big, it's immeasurable. Greatness of his power toward us who believe. The amount of power that God has toward you and in you if you put your faith in Christ. He says this, According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The very same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. It's in me. It's available to us. This is a supernatural reality, friends, that I think we walk in about one centimeter of this in most of our day-to-day lives. One one centimeter deep. And God is inviting us into so much more. I mean, Paul is writing this letter in Ephesus into a culture and a worldview that was obsessed with power. The Romans were obsessed with power. The entire empire was built on power structures. You could worship one of any gods that you wanted to worship, and they were promising some version of power, power over your enemies, power to gain influence and wealth, If you worship in this temple, you'll be successful this year. All the religions, all the governmental structures, they were based on power. And then Paul shows up and he goes, you want to tell me, you you want to learn about power? You want to know what power is really all about? You want to know what power looks like? Looks like a poor Jewish carpenter walking through the streets of Israel with a cross on his back. crucified, scorned, left for dead. But three days later, not only did he overturn death and Satan in the grave by rising from the dead, the very power of God pulled him back to life. But now, through the weakness, the very weak things of the world, just a single man, a Jewish carpenter, that's, that's not a Roman army, that's one guy. But he was more than a man. He was God. And through him, a movement started that went to the ends of the earth. Through acts of love and sacrifice, God unleashed the most powerful thing in the world, the hope of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. The very same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. It's a power to love. It's a power to sacrifice. It's a power to walk in freedom. It's a power to be transformed even in the wilderness, whatever you're facing. And it's a power that gives you hope even in the midst of the worst circumstances of life. Friends, one of my favorite books, I'm closing with this, Unbroken by Lauren Hildebrand, Louis Zamperini. Anybody seen it, seen the movie, read the book? Powerful story. If you haven't, I commend it to you. Towards the beginning of the book, Louis and two of his friends Phil and Mac, they're shot down in one of their planes over the Pacific Ocean, and they end up surviving in a raft, I think for over 40 days. It was the longest survival in the open sea on a raft, I think, in history. Sometime on the fifth day, it was really sad because you began to see how Mac and Phil and Louie all handled this reality of man being on the brink of starvation, surrounded by sharks, being shot at by enemy planes, being dehydrated, all the things that they were going through. And Mac, when he first, you know, when they first got on the raft and they realized they were alive after a plane crash, 
he ate all the supplies day one. He just freaked out, ate every bit of food they had. So Louie and Phil were like, bro, we don't know how long we're going to be here, but that was not cool. But he had already started to give up in his heart. On day five, he completely loses his mind and begins screaming. He's lost all hope. And given their circumstances, you're like, I don't blame him. It's a pretty hopeless circumstance in the middle of the ocean. No one around, no water, no food. And the writer says this, It remains a mystery why these three young men, veterans of the same training and the same crash, differed so radically in their perceptions of their struggles. Maybe the difference was biological. Some men may be wired for optimism, others for doubt. But the writer goes on, For Phil, there was another source of strength. Listen to this. One of which even Louis was unaware According to his family, in his quiet, private way, Phil was a deeply religious man, carrying a faith instilled in him by his parents. And it was amazing because Phil's father once wrote, when things get, he told Phil to do this, when things get beyond your skill and ability, ask God to step in and help out, Phil. Ask God to step in and help out. Phil never spoke of his faith, but... During the nighttime on the raft, he would sing hymns over the ocean, songs about a God of protection and salvation. No matter how bad the circumstances, perhaps for Phil, rescue felt closer and despair more distant every time he sang. Isn't that amazing? By week three, so day 20, Louis had a similar turning point. He began to pray out loud. He had no idea how to speak to God, so he just recited little snippets of prayers that he remembered from his childhood. And at the end of every prayer, Phil would say, Amen. Louis and Phil took turns leading prayers every night, yet Mac remained in his own world. Mac didn't make it, Phil and Louis did. They survived. This is what the writer says, Max's resignation seemed to paralyze him. And the less he participated in the prayers and the songs and the efforts to survive, the more he slipped away. Though he did the least, as the days passed by, it was him who faded the fastest. Louis and Phil's optimism and faith and Max's hopelessness became self-fulfilling prophecies. The hopelessness of one man ended up becoming his reality. The faith and the optimism and the hope of the other men in God specifically ended up leading them to life. It gave them strength in the worst possible places. And here's what we learn. Hopelessness always becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, a downward spiral into a life of despair, shame, guilt, and misery. But in Christ, there is no such thing as a life without hope, friends. None. The power of God that rose Christ from the dead is in you. It's working for you. And whether you're stranded on a raft in the middle of the worst circumstances imaginable, there is still hope. There is still a story that God is writing. And this is what we believe. This is the heart of Christianity. And that's where power comes from. 
Not hope in yourself or your own ability to get through it. Just as Phil's father wrote to him, when you get to the end of yourself, ask God for help. The very same God who rose Christ from the dead will lean towards you with that power to begin walking in a new life. Amen? We're going to close with communion. And friends, if, if you're not a Christian here today, I want to ask that you would not take communion. This, this is a, a moment where those who put their faith in Christ celebrate and remember what Jesus has done for them. If you want to hear more about what it means to be a Christian, we talked about it today, the central claims of the Christian faith and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. There's a next steps card in the seat in front of you where you can say, man, I want to hear more about this. A pastor here at the church will reach out to you and talk with you, pray with you. You can meet with someone at the connection tent right through those doors who would love to meet with you. But for those who are Christians, we're going to take a moment now and remember what Christ did for us, the source of our power, the source of our hope and our inheritance. Jesus Christ dying for us on the cross. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what we're facing today, there is power and strength in you to walk in newness of life. And I pray like Louie and like Phil, Lord, in those desperate hours, we would sing aloud, we would pray aloud. We would come to the foot of the cross and find the hope and the strength that only you can give. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Let's take communion together. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.